forget the Jehovah's Witness. They can't deny that he comes from heaven. So they say, well, he's Michael the archangel come to incarnate himself in human flesh. And the word Michael means one who is like God. And so Jesus was formerly Michael the archangel. That's not what the Bible teaches. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, which addresses the fact that the nation Israel was God's chosen nation. The fact that God elected Israel as his special nation is reflected in many different ways. We've seen that Jesus Christ, who is God, came through Israel, and today we'll look at how God manifested himself to the people of Israel, and Dr. Brogy will explain how Romans 9.5 is a passage declaring the deity of Jesus. Israel not only had the adoption, they had hadaxa. We get our word doxology from the Greek word doxa. It's translated glory. They had the glory. They were the only people in the history of the world that had a literal, actual, physical, visible demonstration of God's presence. They saw it in the Old Testament first as a pillar of cloud by day. Bring up that, if you will, if you remember. Uh, When the people set out, God brought a pillar of cloud. Some think that this provided shade. It certainly will when it appears again during the millennium. We don't know for sure if it did in that day. But among other things that we do know, it provided leadership. Way out in the front of that crew of some two million plus people was the Ark of the Covenant and the Levites with all the tabernacle equipment and the pillar of cloud that led them. When it stopped, that's where they stopped. When it uh, picked up and moved, that's when they moved. At night, it changed into a pillar of fire. You can see when the tabernacle was ultimately constructed, it was right in the center of the camp. And you can read the book of Numbers, which is a book that recounts two senses during the uh, wandering years, the 40 wandering years. And if you've ever studied the tabernacle and the furniture, it's in the perfect shape of a cross, the way it's arranged. And later, that center piece would be basically in the temple. And again, the equipment was in the shape of a cross. And though you cannot see it well here on this diagram, God specified how they were to camp around the tabernacle. At the entrance here on the east gate, you had Judah and two other tribes. On the north, on the left side, you had Reuben and two other tribes. On the west, you had uh, Ephraim and two other tribes. And on the south, you had Dan and two other tribes. And they camped under four banners, and they camped in such a way that if you were up on a high hill and you were looking down, it was in the perfect shape of a cross. God gave the numbers and numbers for a reason. And when you take the whole 600,000, you take the percentages, you see how God specifically said they were to camp. It forms a beautiful cross. So there's a cross within the cross. And at night, there was a pillar of fire that provided, I'm sure, warmth on some days, but it certainly provided light. We're told in Exodus 13, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from the people. And if you remember during that 40-year period, during that time of wandering, 
God specifically said this in the prayer that Moses recounts in Numbers 14. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Moses tells us that when all the surrounding nations looked down and they saw the Israelites camping in formation, they saw the very presence of God. There was a miracle that those people witnessed. Nehemiah, centuries later, records a prayer that the Levites made. They said in Nehemiah 9, And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. The glory also descended literally on the top of Mount Sinai when Moses went up there and he was given the Ten Commandments. In addition, there was a little tent, not to be confused with the tabernacle that Moses would go into and he would meet God in that tent and the glory would once again be seen. It says, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Later, of course, the tabernacle, that portable worship center was built. And when the construction was all done, then we read, as we saw pictured, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Later, there's a more permanent structure that's built in the city of Jerusalem. It's called the temple. And in the temple, there was a section called the Holy of Holies. And above the Ark of the Covenant, the glory again would come. And His presence was so strong that the chronicler says that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Out of all the nations of the world, there was only one nation that was given the glory. A literal, physical expression of God's presence. Um, it's called by some rabbis the Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah is not a biblical word, but it certainly represents a biblical truth because it's a Hebrew word that means He caused to dwell. Indeed, God chose to dwell among His people, Israel. There is, and has never ever been since that time, a literal, visible, external symbol of God's presence. Now, I remember watching the 700 Club years ago, and they had this evangelist on, and he said every time he set up his little tent in which he did his revivals, he said the Shekinah glory would fill the tent, and then it would be over the tent. Of course, only he could see it. You know, you hear stuff like that, and you know they're either lying or exaggerating. In this case, I don't think he was lying. Well, later to find out he was a drug addict and he died of that. You know, you, you take some strong enough drugs, you'll see all kinds of stuff. But here's the point. Only Israel was given the physical, visible expression of God. Even the church today doesn't have the Shekinah. We have God the Holy Spirit living in us. We are little individual temples of the Holy Spirit making one universal church. Now, there's a third blessing. Israel was also privileged to be assigned the covenants. They were assigned the covenants. Paul will write, Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory, and then he adds, and the covenant. So the third blessings, third blessing was the covenant or the agreements. It's in the plural here, and God gave many covenants. Probably the most important covenant as it relates to this section, as we will see, is what's called the Abrahamic covenant. It's recorded in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. It's reiterated to Jacob, uh, to Isaac, uh, Abraham's son, and then to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. 
And it was a covenant that out of all the peoples of the world, God would use the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, to bring the Messiah. And as we will see, it is an unconditional covenant. There are other covenants that God made. There was the covenant of law that God made with Moses. There's the covenant that God made with David, that from his family, the Christ would come and ultimately would sit literally on the throne and rule and reign upon the earth, yet to happen. And so before we are done, we're going to see that the covenants are very, very important. And as Paul is going to note here, notice he says, to whom belongs the covenants. They still belong to the people of Israel. And this, as you're going to see, is going to become critically important as to how you interpret Romans 9. Some people think that God is done with the people of Israel, that the covenant that God made was conditional in nature. And so when they come and they talk about election, they're not going to see Israel being chosen out of all the nations of the world, but they're going to be, see some being chosen for heaven and some other individuals being chosen for hell. But God made an unconditional covenant with Israel, with Abraham, that he has yet to totally fulfill, but because he is a promise-keeping God, because God cannot lie, he is going to keep it. Now, Paul's just introducing this to us, but he's going to unfold these seven blessings as we walk through Romans 9 through 11. The fourth privilege he lists is that Israel was privileged to be given the law. Notice, who are Israelites? to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law. The Old Testament was, of course, not called the Old Testament in the first century. It was just called the Scriptures, or sometimes it was just given the designation of the law. Or if you wanted to subdivide it even more, you might say the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law, the prophets, and the writings. Here he's just referring to the fact that the Jews had been given the law. Now, Paul has already noted this in Romans chapter 2. If you remember the second chapter of Romans, I know it seems like an eternity when we're back there. But in Romans 2, he demonstrates that the religious Jew is just as guilty as the hardcore pagan Gentile. And Paul, just like an attorney, takes them apart piece by piece and he strips them naked by the power of the Holy Spirit as the inspiration comes through his pen and they are left guilty. And of course, the immediate question that a Jew would then ask is, well, then what advantage really is there to being a Jew? And of course, Paul gives a very direct answer at the start of chapter 3 to that question. A lot of people would think, well, if this is the way it is, there is no advantage to being God's chosen people. But Paul says in Romans 3 and verse 2, the advantage, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jewish people were the recipients of the scriptures. They were the caretakers of the word of God. Now, I'm not a fanatic where I'm afraid if I drop my Bible on the floor, I've committed a sin. I'm not afraid to write in my Bible or underline it. I don't worship the book. I worship the God of the book. But some of us, when we come to this book, we come very flippantly. Some of us don't care enough to even bring a Bible to church. If you don't have one, we can rectify that. But if you do have one, you should bring it. Because what you hold in your hands this morning is the very Word of God Almighty. If the President of the United States sent you a personal letter, you would probably pour over it very carefully. 
Well, the God of the universe has given you his love letter and we need to read it. And that love letter was entrusted to the Jewish people. They gave us the Bible. They were the authors of the Bible. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. And when he says, first of all, there are different words for first in the New Testament. First, like second, then third. But that's not the word he means or uses. He uses the word first as a first importance. The number one benefit of being a Jew is you're entrusted with the oracles of God. What an immense privilege these people had. What an incredible blessing they received beginning up there on Mount Sinai. And God told them that there would be great blessing in them heeding his word. When Moses comes down from the mountain, we read this. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, God said, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. There was great blessing in the obedience to God's word. Some of the covenants God made were unconditional in nature. Some were conditional in terms of the blessings they brought. But what did they do? They took the law, they took the Bible, and they hoarded it as a treasure when they were to share it with the nations of the world. And in becoming so self-centered, they became self-righteous and they missed the Savior of the world. It was a privilege. And Paul thinks, man, you had it in your hands. The very word of God that speaks of Jesus, and you missed it. Then he goes to a fifth privilege. They were privileged to be entrusted with the temple service. The fifth blessing that they received concerned their ability to approach God and worship Him, first in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Again, we read they were entrusted with the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the temple service. Now, in the temple, God spelled out a very important message that the life is in the blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God received Abel's offering and he rejected Cain's. And don't listen to this nonsense that God accepted one and not the other because one brought his best and the other brought less than his best. There's nothing in the text that indicates that or one came from the ground and the other didn't. One came from the ground that was cursed. Listen, all of the creation was cursed. We learn in the New Testament that he came in faith. Faith is always based on the word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God had revealed something to Adam and Eve when they came with their fig leaf religion that man's human effort cannot deal with the problem of sin. And so God allows the first death to take place in the universe as he clothes them with coats of skin. A few animals are slaughtered to teach the fact without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so all the way through the Old Testament, there are rivers of blood that flow because the life is in the blood and sin deserves death and only death will satisfy God. And all of those sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. So every year, every Jewish family would literally slaughter a lamb. In addition to that, they would bring their individual sacrifices to the priests at the tabernacle and later the temple. In addition to that, every single day the priest would perform sacrifices. Every morning and every night, he would slaughter a lamb. On a Sabbath day, on a Saturday, he would do two in the morning and two at night. On a new moon or a new month, because they're on a lunar calendar, and that's why some of their dates seemingly change, they would, in addition... Uh, slaughter 
not just one lamb, but seven lambs and a number of rams and so forth. And then on the feast days, they did even more. I read through again this week, Numbers 28 and 29, and if I counted right, just for the nation, apart from personal sacrifices, there was 1,086 lambs that were slaughtered every year, 113 bulls and 32 rams. There were rivers of blood that flowed through their camp because God was helping them to see what John the Baptist would later say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the single most repeated animal ever to be slaughtered, of course, is the Lamb because that pictures Messiah. Now, there's a sixth privilege they were given. That should have pointed them to Christ, but it didn't. The sixth privilege is that they were given the promises. They were privileged to be given the promises. They are Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. The promises are woven all the way through the Old Testament concerning the coming of Messiah. If you're a new believer, the term Messiah and the term Christ are equal terms, just two different languages. And so God reiterates time and time and time again that a Savior is coming and He gives promises. If Dr. John Walvoord counted correctly in his Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy, he has 333 prophecies that all relate to the first coming of the Christ. A few of them that I would note this morning. Messiah, a promise, he would be a Jew, Genesis 12. Further, he would be from the tribe of Judah. And within that tribe, he would come from the family or the line of David. He would be born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. He would be born a virgin without a human father. Messiah would make a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. He would be betrayed by a friend. He would die on a cross. He would rise from the dead. Prophecy after prophecy, promise after promise by which they could identify the Messiah. And of course, there are Jewish men and women in that day who did receive Jesus. Tens of thousands, but out of the millions of them, for the most part, John can summarize, he came to his own and his own received him not. In this country, there are what we would call Christian Jews, completed Jews. They're still Jewish. That's their ethnicity, but they're Christian Jews. That's not an oxymoron. There's about 100,000 believing Jews in this country. When I was in the city of Jerusalem last year, I met a Messianic Jew and he reminded me that there were 12 congregations of Jewish believers in that city alone. There are Messianic Jews to this day and there are people who are Jewish but who reject Jesus. And again, we're going to see why when we come to the 10th chapter, they shouldn't have. But the promises that they were given, they were blinded because they didn't want a Savior who would come and die for their sin because they had become so self-righteous, all they wanted was a ruler who would conquer Rome. Now, don't get lost in terms of what he's speaking here. These are my kinsmen. These are my relatives, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. And then he gives the seventh privilege. They were privileged to be progenitors of the Christ. This is the capstone blessing. Notice how verse 5 begins. Whose are the fathers? They are given the patriarchs of Israel. Now, Paul has already mentioned two of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, in Romans chapter 4. Why are the patriarchs important? Because the patriarchs demonstrated 
what it was that the Jews in Paul's day should have believed. If they believed what Abraham believed, then they would have embraced Jesus. If you remember, the fourth chapter opens with the word, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Was Abraham saved by works or was he justified by faith? And then he'll say in the third verse, well, what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And we went back and we studied that verse in its historical context and we discover that God made a promise to Abraham that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come from his loins and he believed it. He says when a man works, his wage is given to him as a favor, not as a favor, but what's due, but to the one who does not work, but like Abraham simply believes, that person's faith is reckoned as righteous. If they believed what Abraham believed, if they believed what Isaac believed, then they would have believed in Jesus. Abraham recognized that his good deeds could not save him, that he needed a savior. And so he's saying, listen, you've been blessed. You were given the fathers, and Abraham was indeed the friend of God, as he's called in both Testaments. He's called the father of all who believe. And if they had just looked back at Abraham, as Jesus said in Luke, uh, John chapter 8, then they would have been children of Abraham, but they were not, except in a physical sense. Now, some of you here this morning, you have a spiritual family tree. Your dad, your mom were born-again believers, and they led you to Christ. For some of you, your grandparents. For some of you, your great-grandparents. Others of you, you've started a new spiritual heritage. But Paul is saying, you want to talk about family tree. You want to talk about family spiritual tree. You can go back millennium. You can go all the way back to Abraham, the father of the faith, but it did you very little good. But beyond that, and this is the point that you don't want to see, from whom, from the fathers, from their loins, notice, is the Christ according to the flesh. And that's why I say this seventh privilege is the greatest privilege. It was the highest and noblest blessing for the Hebrew people to have Messiah. Jesus had Jewish blood flowing through his veins when he walked on this earth. Now forget all the nonsense on the internet of people denying Jesus' Jewishness. Forget these scholars who sit up there in New York City in their big chairs and their musty offices saying that Jesus was not a Jew. That Samaritan woman had it down. She identified him as a Jew and I think she knew a lot better than they did. The nation of Israel had the fathers and from their loins came the Messiah. And when Paul thinks about who Jesus is, he just starts to celebrate and he begins to worship. From whom is the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Paul, in essence, is saying, forget about the other six blessings. The only purpose of all those other blessings was so that Jesus, the Messiah, might come through Israel into this world. And when he thinks about it, he just wants to stop and he wants to talk about Jesus and he wants to worship. Now, do not miss this. This is an incredible statement when he says that the Christ is God blessed forever. Amen. He is specifically, directly affirming the deity of our Lord and Savior. Forget the Mormons who say that he is a God. He is not a God and they'll try to trip you up and they'll say, well, we believe he's the son of God. He's our Savior. And when they say he's the son of God, they use the phrase in terms of we're all sons and daughters of God. 
Forget the Jehovah's Witness. They can't deny that he comes from heaven. So they say, well, he's Michael the archangel. Come to incarnate himself in human flesh. And the word Michael means one who is like God. And so Jesus was formerly Michael the archangel. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is in human human flesh in this verse. From whom the Jewish people comes the Christ who is overall God blessed forever. He is the Christ according to the flesh. That's his humanity. He is overall God blessed forever. That's his deity. It's an indisputable statement of Christ's divinity. Now, follow this carefully. It's a bit of a grammatical argument and all of us can get a hold of it. But let me read it first from the NIV translation, this verse. It says, theirs are the patriarchs, so you could say the fathers, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. Uh, the Net Bible renders it this way, to whom belongs the patriarchs, and from them by human descent came the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. The New King James puts it this way, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, when you read the NAS and the New King James, it may not be quite as apparent, especially if you had the New English instead of the Old English. Uh, when I was going through high school, they were introducing the New English. I thank God that I had a, a lady named Mrs. Ryan. She was 75 years old. She had osteoporosis. Everybody nicknamed her Rat Ryan, but she was a wonderful lady, and she loved Christ, as I see now, once I became a believer. But she taught us English grammar. And what's a little difficult in the old King James and the new American standard is if you don't understand English grammar, you might miss the fact that this verse is affirming that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the newer translations, sometimes presuming on the ignorance of its American audience, spells it out a little bit more carefully for you, but they spell it out correctly. The King James and the New American Standard is a little more literal, a little more wooden, and sometimes in that literalness, you don't always see what is quite as plain. But let's think our way through it. Take this statement. Carl is not fat, and therefore he runs fast. All right? Carl is not fat, therefore he runs fast. Now, in that sentence, Carl is not fat, therefore he runs fast. Who does the he refer to? Carl. So we would say the antecedent for the pronoun he is Carl. It goes back to Carl, clearly. Now, look at your Bible. Look at the verse. You might want to circle a couple of things. First, circle the word God and draw a line back to its antecedent. What is the antecedent here? Who is? It goes back to who is. Then circle the words who is and draw a line back to their antecedent. Namely, Christ. Paul is simply saying Christ, who is God. Now, follow this. Typically in the Bible, the term God, theos in the New Testament, we get our word theology from it, is the Greek word that God uses to describe God as Father. But we've already seen in our study of Romans that there are times when the word theos, God, is used to designate other members of the Trinity. Tomorrow, when we continue our study in Romans chapter 9, Dr. Brogy will look at the various uses of the word theos. And we'll also look at how, despite Israel's rejection of Messiah, 
They will ultimately be restored in the latter days. To listen again to today's message entitled, The Privileges of Israel, use the Search the Scriptures app, available at the iTunes Store or Google Play Store, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM44. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the privileges of Israel. Join us then as we search the scriptures.